0: Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. Ash, how are you doing?
1: I'm really good, Michael. How are you?
0: Very well. Coming up on tonight's show, Starmer lays out more detail on some of his plans for green energy. David Cameron has appeared at the COVID inquiry, and the government are creating new guidelines for schools on the issue of gender identity. First, though, MPs are currently debating whether to endorse the Privileges Committee report into Boris Johnson. But the current Prime Minister is a no-show. He hasn't been seen since this morning when he explained that decision.
2: Each individual colleague will make up their own mind when the time comes. This is a matter for the House rather than for the government. It's an important distinction and that's why I wouldn't want to influence anyone in advance of that vote.
1: But you promised professionalism, accountability, integrity at every level. Boris Johnson has undermined all of those. Do you not need to set an example and vote for him to be punished for that?
2: As I said, this is a matter for the House. It's not a government matter.
0: It seems a bit odd to have a Prime Minister that doesn't want to influence how MPs vote. Um, But anyway, the government representative who has turned up is Leader of the House, Penny Mordaunt, who appeared at the dispatch box to recommend voting for the report, alone, surrounded by zero fellow ministers. Another person recommending support for the report was Johnson's predecessor in Number 10, Theresa May, saying why MPs should condemn Johnson.
3: If people see us making rules for them and acting as if they are not for us, That trust that I spoke about between the public and Parliament is undermined. If they see members of this House trying to save the careers of friends who have been clearly found by due process to have been guilty of wrongdoing, as happened in the case of Owen Paterson, their respect for us is eroded. And without that trust and respect, their faith in our very parliamentary democracy is damaged.
0: Debate at first was very notable for a lack of anyone defending Boris Johnson and for being all round a little bit dull. That was up until just half an hour ago when Tory MP Leah Nicky got up to say this.
4: I had to speak in the House today because I cannot see where the evidence is, where Boris Johnson misled Parliament (laughs) knowingly, intentionally or recklessly. I'm from Grimsby and I have to... Say it as I see it. Order, order. it is important to listen to the Honourable Lady. Leonici. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. I have to say it as I see it, because that's what my constituents would want me to do. Yes, I have read it, and I think that is quite an appalling question to ask a member in this House. The reality is, is that, is that Boris Johnson did not knowingly or intentionally mislead this House. The reason, reason, if people would like to listen, that I say that is that last year, for six months, I was one of Boris Johnson's parliamentary private secretaries. And I was the only Member of Parliament who was with him for the whole day on the publication of the Sue Gray Report. When he read that,
2: very grateful uh, for the Honourable Lady way. She says, having read the report, that she sees no evidence of Boris Johnson's wrongdoing. Does she agree with me that
5: there is none so blind as those who will not see?
4: Well, I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his comments, but for those people who haven't got anything uh, more interesting to do than actually spend their time reading the whole of the report, of which I did, I am aiming this at members of the public, is that I I suggest people go to pages 85 to 88 and actually read the quotes. Um, The reality is is that there were some people who had parties. Sadly, those people were unelected officials who still should have stood by making sure that they weren't uh, having ministers potentially in difficult situations by advising them incorrectly.
3: The prime minister headed all of those people. He was the team leader for all those working at number 10 and in the cabinet office who were at those parties. During lockdown, I volunteered at West Middlesex Hospital, taking food to the wards because the staff working in them were not allowed to go to the canteen. And they certainly were directed by the chief executive of the hospital trust that they could have no parties not even leaving parties, not even wine Fridays. They had no parties for that whole period. Does the Honourable Member have any comprehension of what her constituents in the same position were feeling like when they heard the evidence?
4: I thank the Honourable Lady, and yes, I do. Um, But what we need to look at here is actually what I witnessed firsthand, and what had happened was that people advising the then Prime Minister at no point advised him that there were parties they advised him again and again, they ad- no I won't give way at the moment thank you they advised him again and again that no rules were broken And that guidance was followed at all times.
0: That was an MP saying that it wasn't politicians, just civil servants who had broken the rules. Clearly she hadn't had a look at the Sunday Mirror um, because today's debate was preceded by the Mirror releasing the first video footage of a lockdown party. And this was their report. (laughs)
3: As long as
2: we don't school, like, oh <laughs> Exclusive video obtained by the Mirror shows a Christmas party organized by Sean Bailey's London mayoral election campaign team in the basement of the Conservative campaign HQ during strict Covid restrictions. It's the first time footage has emerged of one of the rule-breaking parties in Westminster. The man in the braces is Ben Mallett, who is Bailey's campaign manager. He was given an OBE in Boris Johnson's honours list. Sean Bailey was then elevated to the House of Lords in that same list. Ben Mallet is now running the campaign of Moz Hussain, who wants to be the party's candidate in next year's race to be the capital's mayor. The video was filmed on December 14th, 2020, at a time when socialising indoors was banned. Later in the video, guests can be heard laughing about bending the rules. <laughs> As long as we don't stream it we're bending the rules. Well, I'm pretty sure it's <laughs> depressing, I'll say. Oh, cute. Actually. Laura, what do you think of this? Laura
0: <laughs> As long as we don't stream this we're bending the rules. And that was all taking place in mid December 2020 when indoor socialising had been banned. And Tory frontbenchers were quick to get out their condemnations. This was Michael Gove on Laura Koonsberg's Sunday Show. The curtailment of liberty happened because we needed to make sure that the virus did not spread and place an intolerable strain forgive me, on the NHS. And, and then, as a result, uh, uh, you know, provide people with a situation where healthcare was not there for them. So we all accepted a curtailment of liberty and then
3: then we see this
0: and naturally anyone looking at this video is going to be extremely angry.
3: Should you say sorry to people this morning for this? This was happening in your party headquarters. We know it happened in Downing Street on your party's watch. Should you apologise?
0: Yes, I am sorry. I do apologise unreservedly. That was Michael Gove, Ash Sarkar. Will Partygate ever go away?
1: I don't think it will ever stop being a useful stick to beat the government with because it's exactly the kind of story that hacks really like. It's insidery. It's about Westminster. And it's not something which impacts people's material conditions on a day to day. Now, I'm not saying that it was fine that senior members of the Conservative Party, advisers, campaigners were breaking the rules that they're very, Party while in government was setting, it is insulting. It is totally obnoxious. And I think that it offends people's very real sense of um, fairness, considering all of the privations that they were suffering under. But the reason why it's becoming this kind of never ending drip, drip of damaging material, I think it's because the government's fallen out of favor with the media. There isn't a real Opposition, as in one which is going to be substantively different from the Conservative Party and threatening the interests of capital, threatening the status of establishment journalists. And this is kind of you know, a, a safe stick to go on. Um, I don't know I don't know how many people in the chat are going to agree with me at the moment, but every time I see a partygate story, I feel quite frustrated. Uh, think about the very real impact of decline in living standards is happening. Thinking about the failures to adequately deal with climate change, which we know we're going to talk about later, and thinking about the absolutely parlous state of public services. And while Partygate is taking up all of that bandwidth, and it's all about doing these set pieces, will you apologize, Michael Gove? Yes, I am. Very sorry. There isn't any real accountability for what I think are the much graver failures and, you know, sins of this government.
0: The extent of the Tories' unpopularity will be tested in four upcoming by-elections. That's after David Warburton became the fourth MP to quit in two weeks. Um, You might remember Warburton from this photo. He's posing with some hefty lines of cocaine. It was taken by a young Russian woman who Warburton claims was part of a sting operation. Warburton's constituency would normally be considered a safe Tory seat. At the last election, the Tories got 55% of the vote there. But with the Tories polling as they are, it's a seat the Lib Dems have a decent chance of taking. And of course, the Lib Dems will be helped along by the new focus on Partygate, which has curiously meant the Tories seem to have lost part of the GB News
6: vote. I'm glad I've seen this video. Mm. Because I would have been on the other Had this video not come out, I would have been on the other side of the fence still saying, it's just a bit of cake. Lighten up. This, it's, it is about the contempt. It's about the contempt of these advisers and young people um, effectively putting themselves above the rest of the population and saying, yeah, well, it doesn't apply to us. And to, it me, to, to us. me, the unforgivable
4: thing is that clearly was the prevailing yeah. attitude... Inside CCHQ, because where were the bosses walking in and shutting it down? Yeah. They weren't
6: there. Got the little party lights, table covered in food. Mm-hmm. Party clearly, clearly drunk, at least a couple of of them, yeah. clashing into that table. And oh we're pending the rules. Don't stream this video. And, and honestly, I think every single one of those people in that in that video and in the picture, there's a there's a there's a group picture of them all lying on the floor, You're in like a right puddle. Yeah. Yeah. Um including with Sean Bailey, who's a regular on this channel. Need to get him on. If he's not answering his phone, keep ringing it, please, producers. Um, And they're all raising their glasses, having a cheer. Should these people have any sort of power over us now or still be working in Westminster? I honestly wonder. Or at least not without stepping forward in front of a camera and apologising profusely. I don't know. I am angry.
4: Yeah, you I, are. I know. I've never seen you this
6: angry, actually. I don't get angry, really, no. very often.
4: No. But it's um, building. We thought you might calm down, but now you're you're actually getting angrier.
6: I'm more angry, yeah. yeah. I just think it's... I'm so disgusted by it. I've never
0: seen that host before. Very likeable. I'm sure he said something hideous somewhere else that I haven't seen yet, so I'll regret saying that. Who knows? Um, I've never <laughs> seen anything so negative about the Conservatives on GB News. Is it significant?
1: Well, like I said, this is safe territory, for bashing the government because you're not doing it about cost of living crisis, mortgage rates, cost of rent, the NHS, uh the state of schools up and down the country. You're doing it about people who work in politics being, you know, superior and having an attitude of superior superiority, uh being hypocrites and holding the public in contempt. And that is, I think, a form of cynicism, which is often quite good for right-wing political projects when you go, oh, they're all just, you know, piggies in the trough and they're all out for themselves and they don't care about ordinary people. That's quite a disempowering thing to feel. Now, it's not factually wrong, but it is disempowering. It doesn't make people feel like, and I really want something different and this is how we're going to do it. It makes you want to disengage from politics. And that's, very good for politicians who've got absolutely no intention of serving the public interest. So I think it's very safe territory uh, on which to bash the government. Um, Had Jeremy Corbyn been leader of the Labour Party rather than Keir Starmer, I suspect you'd have found a different tone being struck by many of the hacks and by GB News, because instead of being a case of all politicians are the same, you've got someone who is clearly quite different. Um, And I think that there is a performative element to, oh, I've never been so angry. Well, yes, it's insulting. It's insulting and it feels deeply, um, you know, it gets the hackles up when you think about all of the things that you had to miss out on. Now, for lots of people, it was quite serious things like not being able to be at the bedside of a dying loved one. But even if you were lucky enough not to lose anybody during the pandemic, it is annoying that other people were having a really good time and living it up when you were stuck at home pretending to be interested in baking sourdough bread. Um, But that's the angriest you've ever been at a politician. Really? I mean not not even, I don't know, the gratuitous vandalism done to the NHS by Andrew Lansley and then Jeremy Hunt. That doesn't make you feel angrier. I mean, when I saw that your rent had gone up again, Michael, I was angrier than that. And that should be the kind of thing that presenters and hacks are getting on top of rather than something which is really about um, a clutch of dozens of you know very elite policymakers and advisers and politicians rather than the millions of people who are having to deal with the consequences of austerity and inflation.
0: Let's move on to someone who makes me genuinely angry. We're not talking about my landlord again. We're talking about a former prime minister. The COVID-19 inquiry is currently looking at how prepared Britain was for the coronavirus pandemic and coming as it did after years of Tory-imposed austerity. An obvious question is whether the impoverishment of our public services might have made things worse. To answer that question, the inquiry called David Cameron as a witness. Here's what he had to
1: say. Do you accept, Mr. Cameron, that the health budgets over the time of your government were inadequate and led to a depletion in its ability to provide an adequate service?
7: Um, I I don't accept that, Um, neither on a sort of big picture level or on a small picture level. I mean, the big picture level, I don't think you can separate the decision and the necessity of getting the budget deficit down and having a, a, a reasonable debt to GDP ratio so you can cope with future crises. I don't think you can separate that from um, the funding of the health service or, indeed, anything else. I mean, If you lose control of your debt and you lose control of your deficit and you lose control of your economy, you end up cutting the health service. That's what happened in Greece. That's what happened in countries that did lose control um, of their finances. I don't think you can separate the two. So we made the important decision to say that the health service was different, its budget would be protected. And so there were real terms increases every year. And so, for instance, there were 10,000 more doctors working in the NHS at the end of the time I was prime minister than there were at the beginning. Um, would everyone like to spend even more on the health service? Yes. There were. I mean, I, you know, making these difficult choices about spending was... was it wasn't a sort of option that, that was picked out of thin air, I believed, and I still believe it was absolutely essential to get the British economy and British public finances back to health so you can cope with the future crisis.
0: That's complete bullshit. He, he was prime minister when interest rates were so, so, so low. That was the time to invest in the NHS. What he did was squeeze it for cash, right? Now it's fallen on its face, and now interest rates are much higher, so it's harder to invest in it. I think we should still do it anyway, but it's harder than when he was in power. Also, this idea that you need a, you need a very... Um, low debt-to-GDP ratio when you enter a crisis. Japan has a debt-to-GDP ratio of about 250%, right? They had a much better COVID pandemic than we did. And that's because they had a public sector that worked, right? They could respond to a crisis in real time instead of constantly trying to catch up with what had already happened. Now, it, you know, I, I can't think of a single country or definitely a single country sort of in, in, in the rich world who has said, oh, you know what really screwed up our response to COVID-19, it was that we hadn't done austerity beforehand. No. What they've all said universally is we probably should have invested a bit more into public health. We should have invested a bit more into healthcare and we should have learned from the, the SARS pandemic in East Asia in 2004, right? That's what people are saying. No one is saying, oh, we, could, we couldn't respond to the pandemic because we didn't do brutal austerity. The United States didn't do austerity to the same level that we did after sort of 2008 because Obama came into power, of course, they had a bit of a stimulus. They didn't do the same kind of austerity thing we did. Now, they had a terrible response to COVID. What was that because of? It was because they had an idiot as a president. They didn't have any problem borrowing money from financial markets, right? And, and we also would have had no problem borrowing money from financial markets during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially because, in fact, it was just the Bank of England that printed most of the money anyway. So, so, so the idea that it was a reasonable trade-off To have Also, by the way, he didn't reduce the debt levels, David Cameron, it went up the whole time, because what he completely did was was crash any hope of having economic growth. So one side of the debt to GDP ratio is obviously the GDP part. So he didn't get it down. But even if he had got it down, that wouldn't be worth putting all of our public services at the point where just... A few more beds being needed makes the whole thing collapsed. He stripped all of those public services of spare capacity. Any kind of slack that they might have had that meant they would have been able to deal with a pandemic was gone, sacrificed on the altar of having a slightly lower debt-to-GDP level, which we didn't even get in the end because he crushed growth. It's a stupid, stupid guy. Biggest, biggest vandal of this country in my lifetime. I think Tony Blair, the biggest vandal on a global level because of Iraq. David Cameron, the biggest vandal on a domestic level because of austerity. Specifically, Cameron claimed there that there were real terms increases to the health budget every year when he was Prime Minister. Now, that was um, a bit slippery. So this graph from the BBC shows how health budgets changed across successive governments. Traditionally, the NHS budget has been raised by 4% above inflation each year. Or Quite a bit more than that most years um, under New Labour, but that's the average. And that's to allow um, us to accommodate new medical advances and as well as increasing demand, especially with an ageing population. But under Cameron's coalition government, the green bars, it barely increased at all until 2014. And it decreased in 2011 to 2012. Um, Under the Tories, it only went above that 4% benchmark in 2019. So that was, if you remember, it became a real, real political issue in 2019 that the to- everyone suddenly went, oh, God damn, the Tories have destroyed the NHS. Unfortunately, we had a pandemic the following year. Um, so, of course, though budgets were technically increasing, growing demand and the additional pressures on the NHS weren't being accounted for. Ash, what did you make of David Cameron in the dock? I don't know if we can call it the dock. David Cameron giving evidence to the COVID inquiry. I'll say it the proper way.
1: If I speak, the police will come round to my house. So I'm not going to say exactly what I felt when I saw David Cameron giving evidence to the COVID inquiry. Um, But there was another thing which he neglected to mention, and that is the impact of austerity on the overall health of the population. So as you correctly pointed out, you didn't have spending increases for the NHS, which dealt with the fact that we have an ageing population. So we have growing numbers of people who are more likely to need health care because they're getting older. We also have a problem of a uh, totally dysfunctional social care system, which means as people get older, they really are slipping through the nets. And Lots of people are going without the care that they need until they end up getting a referral to the hospital, which means that they're arriving uh, in need of you know, more intervention or longer periods of care because they're not getting it elsewhere. And the third thing that austerity did is that it worsened people's health. Now, don't take my word for it. This is the work of uh, Sir Professor Michael Marmot, who has looked at the impact of austerity on people's health. And it was really, really bad. So one is that you're seeing the gains in life expectancy, slowing down in some cases uh, those gains going backwards for the very poorest people. In society. So between rich and poor, you have an average difference of life expectancy in some areas of 20 years. And you've also got all kinds of worsening health outcomes. Now that might be as a result of food poverty, uh, not being able to afford or source or access healthy and nutritious foods. You've got all kinds of health conditions that go along with that. And you've also got issues like When you have uh, an economic crisis which is impacting the poor, you've got all kinds of other health-related issues increasing as well. So it might be substance abuse problems. It might be the kinds of health problems that come from living in overcrowded or damp or poorly insulated housing. Now, what that added up to was a greater population of clinically vulnerable people than perhaps we would have had if David Cameron and George Osborne hadn't shunted through a whole load of budget cuts. Uh, You certainly would have had uh, had they not shunted through those budget cuts and had they maybe gotten on the front foot and dealt with the crisis in social care that we're still seeing to this day. Uh, Boris Johnson promised that that would be his very first priority upon entering government. He should have said it would have been, you know, really way down there after securing a loan from a chum, redecorating his house and scoffing birthday cake at every opportunity. Um No one's dealt with the crisis in elderly care. And it's meant that we've had, I think, just a population which was much more vulnerable to COVID than, than it would have been. And that's why I'm so angry about austerity because it wasn't simply a case of going, Oh, you know, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, the local school had more pens and pencils? Now, of course it would. It really killed people it made people's health worse. And it made people so much more vulnerable when it comes to real times of crisis, because you've got a care system, which was being run to the bone anyway, in terms of the delivery of day-to-day services. So you didn't have any emergency capacity to deal with an emergency. And I don't know what they thought was going to happen. I mean, there was some modeling of what might happen in the Event of a respiratory pandemic, operation sickness, it anticipated many of the problems that indeed the health service ran into, but I don't know what they were thinking. When they saw emergency capacity on entering government, they went, "Yeah, we can get rid of that. Probably no emergency is going to happen. It's just it's such recklessness that I just think it can't be stupidity. It, it must have been cruelty or malevolence on some some level. I just I cannot believe people would be that stupid.
0: Let's go straight to our next story. Labour leader Keir Starmer has given a speech in Edinburgh laying out his plans for a green revolution. For once it wasn't just vague promises. There were some solid commitments on industrial strategy and common ownership. But it wasn't only a pitch to put Labour in charge of the green transition. Taking advantage of an unravelling SNP, it was also an appeal directly to the people of Scotland to stick with the UK under a Labour government.
5: I've been right across this nation in the past year. I've been to Wick. Glasgow, Inverness, Cocody, Rutherglen, Fife, Leith, here today. And throughout all this, I see the contours of three different Scotland's. Blair Scotland that the solidarity of working people built, that the labour movement built, the industrial strength, the sense of community, the social housing, the welfare state, the NHS, all emerging out of the rubble of the Second World War all providing security for working people in defiance of a volatile world. But there's also the scars of a second Scotland, a Scotland born of 1979 onwards, when the Labour Party was turfed out of power, in part, it has to be said, by the SNP, and the Tories got to manage that period of enormous upheaval. It's a Scotland where the prosperity oil and gas could have brought was squandered on a political war against that first Scotland, where the government saw working-class solidarity across Britain as a threat, not a source of hope and dynamism. And an economic transition away from Scotland's main industries was, as it was in Sheffield and Sunderland, Nottinghamshire and Neath, chaotic, unstable, brutal. But if you come to places like Nova Innovation here, or the hydrogen and carbon capture cluster in Grangemouth, the marvel of Whiteley Wind Farm outside Glasgow, then you can glimpse a different path. The green shoots of a third Scotland, a new Scotland, a future Scotland, a Scotland that is once again the beating heart of Britain because Britain is once again built for and by the solidarity of working
0: people. Well, that is the most confident I've seen Starmer sound since his leadership election. Now, when I say that, uh, the, 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 the the doubt that comes into my mind should be obvious, because obviously in his leadership election, that was saying a bunch of stuff that he then went back on afterwards. But I mean, in any case, it's a coherent vision, I think, that he is, he, he is presenting. He's saying, Thatcher came into power, North Sea Oil, the the wealth from that was used to break the Labour movement, to fund tax cuts and to sort of keep the state rolling along while it was losing money from all of those strikes, um, which was just people trying to defend their communities, right? So it was coherent. I think the speech continued to be fairly coherent. And Starmer broke his plans for a green revolution into three parts. Up first, there's investment.
5: Today, three new steps, all in the first year of the next Labour government, the building blocks of our plan for a new Britain. One, we will harness the bounty of clean energy and do exactly what the Tories failed to do with North Sea oil and gas, a new national wealth fund. This will crowd in investment for the projects that are critical for growth: the battery gigafactories, the clean steel plants, the ports that can finally handle large offshore wind parts, and crucially, will give the British people a stake in the returns, and businesses the stability they need. I spoke to people involved in the projects at Grainbath lately. They're ambitious, clear about the benefits of carbon capture, but frustrated about the speed of progress. And they're also clear about the missing ingredient, political clarity of thought from government. This is what the government doesn't get. Public investment crowds in private investment, provides long-term certainty. This partnership, this is the game-changer. There are billions upon billions waiting to be unlocked. Opportunities to create jobs right across the country in manufacturing and in services. But we've got to move fast.
0: That talk of a sovereign wealth fund based on energy, smart. It's the kind of thing we talk about on your show quite a lot. The idea that Margaret Thatcher, we had um, access to North Sea oil. We took it out of the ground, we sold it. And what was it used for to fund tax cuts? What did Norway do? Um, They invested it into a sovereign wealth fund, which now is worth a trillion pounds or a trillion dollars. I'm not quite sure what currency it's in, but it's a lot of money, whatever currency it's denominated in. And that can be used to invest in the country, right? To invest in people's welfare. If Thatcher had done that, we would have been in such a better place now than we currently are. And so I think it's clever to sort of say, this time around, we're going to do it differently. Again, the question of do we believe him? A different question, but as I say, more coherent than usual. Um, Of course, large-scale investment matters to many people, especially if it means jobs and not just any jobs, good jobs. That was Starmer's second pitch.
5: Today, we go further. The competition for clean energy investment is fierce, and it will only get fiercer. All around the world, our competitors are developing new frameworks to attract it. And you better believe it they are rewriting the rules of their economies to make sure it delivers good jobs. The American Inflation Reduction Act is setting the pace. In seven months, they've created more jobs than we have in seven years. But they're not the only ones. And in truth, we've never been on this pitch. Britain has the second largest offshore wind capacity in the world, a close second only to China. Yet across the North Sea in Denmark, they've got three times as many jobs. How do you explain that? How do you explain Scottish wind turbines built in Spain, in Holland and Indonesia, as the workers in the fabrication yards in Fife, working people who would be proud to build something great for their country, look out of their window and watch others putting them up on the fourth? There is no justification But mark my words, this ends with a Labour government.
0: So concretely, Starmer said he'd change rules so that to win contracts, companies would need to employ local people and recognise unions. He also said firms would get financial rewards for employing local people, so carrots and sticks, so that the Green Industrial Revolution creates jobs here. That's the idea. Um, Next up, we heard more about the great British energy company Labour announced at last year's conference.
5: And finally, the centrepiece the embodiment of our new priorities and values, a new homegrown energy company, a benefit so many of our competitors already enjoy, like Ørsted did in Denmark, Vattenfall in Sweden. The argument is simple. If there is money to be made from our resources, it must serve the British people, must invest in our communities, create British jobs. Right now, Malaysia and Munich, the city of Munich, own more of our offshore wind assets than we do. And this makes it so much harder for us to turn clean British power into good British jobs. No more. We will set up a proper national champion, great British energy. We will grow the industries of tomorrow here, the clean energy projects in every community, so we can win the race for the future. And because it's right for jobs, because it's right for investing in our communities, because it's right for national security, yes, GB Energy will be publicly owned.
0: That part actually reminded me of a momentum video that they put out, I don't know, 2018 or 2019 or something where they they were talking about how our railways were owned by public companies based in Europe. So why don't we just own them ourselves? He seems to be saying a similar thing um, about energy there. Um, Starmer also promised to base GB Energy in Scotland. Um, I think, which is a pitch to try and win back Scotland. Maybe there are geographical reasons to do that otherwise. I suppose they've got a lot of wind up there. Um, Other promises included investment in hydrogen, nuclear, and tidal energy, as well as doubling onshore wind, trebling solar power, and quadrupling offshore wind. Um, Starmer also pledged to insulate 19 million homes. It all sounds pretty impressive, but we've all learnt the hard way that Starmer is not necessarily a man who can be taken at his word. That was a theme that Sky's Beth Rigby picked up with this question.
3: Mr Starmer, you're making big promises, but you have already U-turned on your £28 billion a year investment into green transition. Your shadow chancellor said it shows you can be trusted with the public finances. But doesn't it also suggest, as with Brexit, tuition fees, nationalisations, you're just like all
5: of those other politicians who can't be trusted to keep your promises? On the 28 billion, we are doubling down. We're not backing off. And it's really important that we say this. Uh, for two reasons for uh, the policy position we've adopted. The first is a matter of trust, the very thing you touch on, Beth, which is we said that our fiscal rules were in place, Rachel set them out two years or more ago, Inflation now is in a completely different place to where it was two years ago because the Tories have made such a mess and done such damage to the economy. But at the same time, as we work through our plans and set out what we'll do in years one, two, three, showing just how serious we are, it's clear that we can ramp up to that £28 billion. And what I would say, Beth, is this. When I say to um, people in the sector that we will partner with, that we want clean power by 2030. They don't say you're somehow backing down or lacking ambition. They say, whoa, that is a real challenge. Centrica say it's doable, but we're really going to have to go for it. So there's nothing here to read into any sense of lacking ambition or backing down.
0: Ash, what did you make of that? I think it was the the closest Starmer's ever got to putting forward a bit of a positive vision.
1: It seemed a bit like he was taking a bit from... Harold Wilson, you know, the white heat of technology. There's a bit of Jeremy Corbyn's Green Industrial Revolution. And he's obviously quite heavily inspired by Ed Miliband, who's been working in this policy area as well. So I think in some ways it is the best we've seen Starmer because he's drawing both in rhetoric and policy terms from politicians who've been committed to this kind of policy making. I also think that, as you said, it is a coherent view of politics and the economy and policymaking you're telling a story which makes sense because it's rooted in fact one of the reasons why we have been so vulnerable to austerity why we have had so much inequality in this country is because of the fact we're living in the long shadow of Margaret Thatcher those policymaking decisions that she took in the 1980s still affect us to this very day and i think that the promise of you know well paid unionized, secure jobs, it's good. I mean, it's just unequivocally good. And that's something which if Starmer follows through, I'll go, that was a really good thing, which came out of his government, if he forms one. But that's the thing is is he gonna stick to it? Um he's U-turned on major policies including freedom of movement, tuition fees, and he's already watered down the commitment to 28 billion pounds on green infrastructure. Um The idea that he's someone who can be trusted to stick to these headline numbers and not find another reason why the circumstances are so different. So, of course, he's got to change tack. I think that he's proved that he's an easily bullied politician. If the Mail, the Times and the Telegraph all go for him, if people on the Labour right start shrieking, he will fold like a trestle table. He's not somebody who I think has got the stomach for a fight to stick to a policy when establishment forces and the right wing of his own party are all screaming at him. Uh, I think there's also something which doesn't get spoken about very much, and it's about the 28 billion of uh, green infrastructure funding, is that there's lots of ways in which you can do it. Now, he's sort of putting front and center this idea of a publicly owned GB company. Now, I don't think that that's as good as outright nationalization. uh, For reasons that we've talked about on this show, I think it's bad to suck money out of the system and allow it to be gobbled up by shareholders. I think it's much better if it's invested in the energy system. But look, at least one publicly owned energy company, that's better than nothing. But you've got an awful lot of other spending that has to get done. And there's all sorts of ways in which you can do it. Now, what isn't being asked of Starmer is whether this is going to be some kind of reheated Blairism, private finance initiatives where you end up with these massive outsourcing companies, Serco, uh, G4S, um, Deloitte, running services that they've actually got no expertise in. That's something which happened during the coronavirus pandemic, where you saw accountancy firms being brought in to run test and trace systems, an outrageous waste of money, and also very often it didn't work. And we also saw the dangers of relying on the private sector and big outsourcing firms for public infrastructure with the collapse of Carillion. It endangered hospitals and schools and also threatened to have much bigger scale economic contagion because it was such a huge company and so many subcontractors relied on it. Now, that is the kind of thing that Keir Starmer should be pressed on. So while I, I go, okay, coherent vision being laid out in this speech, and if all of these things come to pass, then I'll just be like, great, tick, tick, tick. But how that 28 billion is going to be spent through what channels and partnering with what other stakeholders, I think is really important. Um, And I've not seen anyone put that to him.
0: I mean, also, we said Starmer sounded coherent in that speech. Um, Before the speech, he gave an interview to Radio 4. He sounded quite a bit less confident there.
3: You are also announcing, aren't you, that you will be honouring all new exploration licences for
0: oil and gas granted until the point that labour comes to power, correct? Yes. And that will mean that oil and gas will be in our energy mix
4: beyond 2030, into the 2050s?
5: Yes. Uh, oil and gas will be part of the mix for decades to come under existing licences or licences that are granted uh, in the near future. How and does we that will fit with being with, a clean
0: well,
3: energy superpower?
5: Well, I'll just continue, for may, and then um, and obviously answer your question. Uh, we will work with the sector to manage those licences, um, but we have to recognise, and I think everybody does recognise, that there are dwindling supplies of oil and gas in the North Sea. 90% of gas, for example, is either already extracted or already accounted for. So there has to be change. We know there's got to be change. Nobody really argues with that. And I think that we made a historic mistake... Back, you know, decades ago with coal fields where there was no planning for the transition, and even now many people listening and will know firsthand or completely understand that communities are still feeling the effects of that failure. I'm not prepared to let that happen if, under a future if, Labour if government. If I may say that's slightly different, isn't it?
1: That, that's about the jobs of the transition. Let's just focus on what you will allow. No, no,
5: no it isn't. it, it really well, isn't. Because if, but if, but, but if I want oil to just focus first on the, on
0: the actual activity. Well, oil and gas may be dwindling, but there is still large potential. Like, For example, that new uh, oil field off uh, Shetland, Rosebank, would produce Rosebank. almost 70,000 barrels of oil a day at its peak.
5: Yes, and Rosebank is almost certainly going to get a decision uh, in the uh, foreseeable future. Um, And if it then is a licence, it falls into the same category as all other existing licences.
1: When it comes to Keir Starmer and oil and gas, I think the reason why he's prevariegating is because he doesn't want to say anything which could be seen muddying the waters of job creation. So if he says, "Okay, well, we're going to block Uh, oil and gas licenses which are being issued now or new drilling on existing fields which is agreed now but would take place during a Labour government he's like I don't want to have to do that kind of explaining now from a comms perspective you go okay I get that but from a climate perspective it's Totally disastrous. I mean, JSO just up oil. They get a lot of stick, and they get a lot of stick because they're operating in a media env- environment which is determined to malign and misunderstand them. But their point, which is no new oil and gas licenses at all, we've got enough for eight years. That's going to be enough for decarbonisation and you know weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels entirely. That is, I think, the quite serious proposal, which every single politician in this country, Labour, Tory, Green, Lib Dem, SNP, Plaid, whoever should be engaging with, because that is the necessity of the task in front of us.
0: Let's go straight to our next story. The government is set to announce new guidelines for schools on the issue of gender identity. And in a sign that their priority is genuinely the welfare of children and not just feeding a culture war, it's all been leaked to the start. This is the headline. Rishi's school rules. Schools to be banned from letting pupils change gender if their parents oppose it in new guidance from Rishi Sunak. And in the article they write this. Under the new plans, heads in England will be told that parents must always be consulted if a child wants to be called another name or wear a different gender uniform. And the school will not be able to use the child's new preferred pronouns until parents give a consent teachers will be ordered not to recognize the transition within the school gates if the parents do not agree with it, and neither students nor teachers will have to call another pupil by their preferred pronouns if they do not want to. Even if parents do give the move, the green light heads must also consider the mental effects on other children before approving the gender change following a long period of consideration. Goes on to say this, the PM will also insist that Sport should be protected for children in the name of safety and to keep it fair, where a child is questioning their gender, they should not be allowed to play competitive sport. Some reaction to the guidance has compared it to Section 28. That's the laws that prevented anything about lesbian, gay, and bisexual lifestyles being taught in English schools between 1988 and 2003. Um, But Tabitha McIntosh, who's a school... English teacher and researcher made this point on social media. This is not Section 28. It's worse. Section 28 didn't mandate that parents be informed if a 16 year old said they were gay. It didn't say that straight students' well being had to be considered in a school's decision to allow students to be LGB. It didn't outlaw my trousers. Ash, what do you make of this news story? And I suppose that analogy to Section 28.
1: I think it's a pretty pertinent analogy because when it comes to students dealing with their sexuality, there absolutely is no um, pressure on teachers to make disclosures to parents against the pupil's will. And that's exactly how it should be, because, sure, in an ideal world, parents would be informed and aware of whatever kind of life changes their child was going through. But that's not always possible. Now, there are some quite serious reasons why that's not always possible. It might be that a child is being raised in a homophobic or a transphobic family. It might be that they're at risk of abuse, whether that abuse is physical or emotional. But it might also just be that kids need time to work stuff out by themselves. They need privacy they need guidance from people who aren't just within their immediate family and that doesn't you know necessarily mean that their parents are like bad or you know they're being shut out of their child's life but it does just mean i mean i just think it's it's natural i mean that's been the case for many of my queer friends and a queer family which is that before they came out to their parents or their siblings. They just needed that time to be able to work it out outside of a family home context, to have people to talk to, to explore those aspects of their identity before they were ready to present it to their family.
0: I don't envy teachers trying to navigate this issue, especially as the conversations they engage in might end up getting shared by right wing media organizations on. Line. So, what you'll hear now um, is a recording between a teacher and two 13 year old students. Um, there's clearly been some sort of disagreement in the classroom, and this is what happens next.
3: How dare you? You've just really upset someone. Did they, did they Saying things like, should be in an asylum. Oh, I didn't say that. that. I just if they, if they want to identify as a cow or something, then they're like genuinely on that. Then they've gone yeah, yeah, they're crazy. crazy. You were questioning their identity. I wasn't questioning. I was just saying about the gender. I haven't said anything about them. Okay. Where did you get this idea from? That there's only two genders. I should say my is. opinion. That is my opinion. If I respect their genders? opinion, can't they respect my opinion? It's just not an opinion. This is. Yeah, but it it's is. not an opinion that's inherent. There's only a boy under girl yesterday. There's no, no other name. private part. There's, there's only two. Gender is not linked to do with the, there the parts that you were born with gender is about how you identify which is what I said right from the very beginning yeah, of the no, I just don't
4: agree with yeah. that
3: so why should I have to listen biological, to Biological sex there is actually three biological sexes because you can be born into sex you can be born with male and female body parts or hormones, yeah. did you know that? Yeah there's three, there's not three Doesn't mean no, There's three, I'm talking about biological sex in terms of gender, there are lots of genders there is transgender there is a gender, people yeah, that don't believe law. they have a gender at all. Yeah, but you can't have that. You, are, well, you have can't have that. It's not a law. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's not a law, but it's all the we just don't agree with it. We just think it's all just. If possible. you have a vagina, you're a girl. If yeah, you have a penis, you're a boy. Yeah. yeah. But cisgender is not necessarily the way to be. You were talking about the fact that cisgender is the, the norm, that you identify with the gender that with the sexual order that you're born with, yeah. or you're weird, that's yeah. basically what you're saying, yeah. which is really despicable. How? If I called my mum right now, my mum would just If I called my mum, she'd say... Well that's very sad as well then. How is it? Most of people agree with that, there's only a small majority of people who actually think that. And why do you think we have so many problems in the world with homophobia? Yeah, but that's, the not homosexual. Homosexual. Yeah, that's, that's not our gender. Yes. Yes, I'm fine with lesbians and gay people. Same. I've got nothing against them. Same. But gender is, there is a link between it and you're same. saying that people can't is change. No they, they can't. can't. <laughs> They can't, unless you get yeah, so a penis wrong. attached. No, I'm not. You're confusing sex and gender. No, I'm not, though, because yes. if yes, you, you have are. a vagina, you're a girl. If you have a penis, you're a boy. Yeah. Wrong. You can't be, you can't have a vagina and be a girl. Unless you get a separate, so oh, yes, even then, because you've about got those genes. How you identity. Oh, how you identify. It. Yeah, this I mean, it's not an opinion. With yes, the it, way is. it is. This yes, it is. No, it's not. And if you don't like it, you need to go to a different school. So go to a I'm reporting
1: you to Miss Willis. It seemed to be that First another the pupil objected to uh, what these other individuals were saying and then the teacher got involved and it all exploded into a much bigger discussion about the relationship, if there is any, between sex and gender. Um, so you don't know if this is within the context of a pupil being trans or non-binary, being bullied, being interrogated, and that's something which is then being intervened with in a way which I think then... You know, is is kind of clumsy because what what you would want a teacher to do is two things at once. One is to preserve the dignity and the safety of all of their pupils, and to protect pupils who may be experiencing bullying because of homophobia or transphobia. To give them the support and the protection that they need, right? That's absolutely a teacher's first priority. And then the second thing is going, okay. Well, how do I teach my pupils to have a discussion in a way which is respectful and isn't closing down on, you know, quote unquote reasonable opinion, but is facilitating their ability to have a discussion in a way which is productive and fruitful? Now, I think in saying it is not an opinion, that's not a way in which that's happening. What you would want to do is to say, okay, well, this is what science has to say about the biology of sex. And here are all the different ways in which you can look at gender. But what isn't up for negotiation is within the space of this classroom or the school environment, the validity of a trans or non-binary student's identity. Like, I think that that's a perfectly reasonable way to go about it. But to go back to the point I was making before my, you know, I guess quite clearly transphobic internet decided to crap out on me. Um, I don't envy teachers being dragged into the middle of a culture war, you know, just as you said. But I do think that they've got a duty uh, and a real responsibility in terms of, you know, looking out for the safety of trans non-binary and questioning pupils. And that does mean thinking about the ways in which, you know, quote unquote debate, you know, in reality, a kind of, you know, targeted interrogation can be a form of bullying. Isn't always, but definitely can be. Um, And I also think that they've got a duty to look out for the way in which a certain degree of privacy and autonomy is needed by kids in order to up into well-adjusted adults. And I think we recognize that when it comes to sexuality. We recognize it not as an absolute right, but as a uh, qualified right when it comes to sexual activity. There is such a thing as GILIT competency. There is such a thing as, you know, respecting the medical autonomy of under 16s in accessing reproductive health care. Um, and I think that those are important principles to bear in mind. Obviously, you would want, Parents to feel like they knew what was going on in their children's lives, but that isn't a wholly unqualified right either.
0: There's the question of sex and gender, and what there is, what is their relationship to each other. There's also just how would you deal with that in a classroom situation. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining if I was sort of teaching about gay marriage or something in a, in a, in a lesson. Um, you know, when I've been in these lessons talking about issues such as this, you know, if someone says I'm a fundamentalist Christian or very strongly religious and I think it's a sin. You'd say, okay, that's your opinion, but in this space, um, we need to recognize you know, that this is valid. You can keep that to yourself if you want, because some people will find that offensive. You know, so it's, it's not to say, it's despicable that you have that view. It's to say, you expressing that view in too assertive a way is, as you can imagine, I think going to upset some people. So can, can we please um, you know, calm down a little bit? More difficult said than done. You know, being a teacher is very, very hard, as I always say on the show. As I've also said um, throughout this segment, there might be complicated issues here. One thing that is not particularly complicated is that Rishi Sunak is not an honest broker on this question. That was made clear in this new video obtained by Pink News.
2: At the same period of time, over the period, you may have noticed uh, Ed Davy has been very busy. Uh, like me, you were probably seeing that he was busy trying to convince everybody that women clearly had penises. And uh, I was reflecting, you all know, I am a big fan of everybody studying maths to 18. But it, it turns it turns out that we need to focus on biology to 18. <laughs> uh,
0: so gross and so pure. That was him talking to the 1922 committee. Um I mean, I don't even want to really have a conversation on on this basis, but in case anyone is watching that thinking, Sunak is right, essentially what he is arguing is that no one can be a a trans woman unless they've had bottom surgery, which is, is really extreme to sort of say, you, you will not be treated as a woman unless you go through a very invasive surgery, which is, you know, not my understanding of trans is not like the medical establishment's understanding of trans issues and is actually an incredibly oppressive position to have to anyone who is trans. So gross, gross, gross. He's not someone who can claim that he is just trying to arbitrate a, a difficult and complex topic. He is someone who is playing politics here in a very grotesque way. Let's go to our final story. Boris Johnson's former advisor, Samuel Kasumu, was on the BBC this weekend where he offered this qualified defense of his former boss.
4: Samuel, I know you
1: were involved in working on the vaccine when you are in number 10. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that now when you reflect on all of this?
5: About the vaccines or about not the parties.
3: Well, I suppose the, the sort of terrible mishmash in a way. Oh it yeah, human, human beings
5: are c- completely complex. We can we can achieve brilliant things and do really stupid things, and, and it could all you know, manifest itself simultaneously. And know, so Boris Johnson's legacy uh, is of course the vaccine deployment, but it's also some of the nonsense that happened mm. when I was there. But it's completely possible to achieve great things and still be a bit of a knob. I think so. <laughs>
4: Justin, Justin. Not,
7: not that I'm calling Boris Johnson a knob, of course.
4: Goodness me, and it's a
7: family it show be. on a Sunday
1: morning, so I hope nobody's offended by that that, that line.
0: I think saying Boris Johnson achieved great things but was a bit of a knob is actually far too kind, Ash. How would you um, respond to that claim?
1: There was more dignity in Samuel Kasuma, at least acknowledging the possibility that Boris Johnson has behaved like a bit of a knob, than the really unedifying spectacle of... Johnson supporting MPs leaping in front of the bullet like you know Kevin Costner in the bodyguard in order to you know protect the horniest Labrador in christendom um, yeah i don't I don't think that Boris Johnson achieved particularly great things either for the country or even for the Conservative Party because if I was a Tory, I would be mega pissed off that a once in a generation opportunity like an 80 seat majority had been completely squandered on matters relating to bad judgment so the defense of christopher pincher bad judgment um the flouting of COVID regulations at number 10 bad judgment you know with an 80 seat majority You know, conservatives could have done whatever they liked. They could have privatized your kidneys. They could have made, I don't know, nursery school pupils pay rent. They could have had whatever policies their hearts desired. And they completely fucked it. So, no, I don't think that Boris Johnson is like Alexander the Great, did amazing things but was a bit of a knob. I think that actually part of the reason why you know, there is such acrimony for him in parts of the right-wing media after Partygate is because they wasted, he wasted the greatest opportunity that had been handed to them politically for decades. And they don't know when they might get an opportunity like that again. So yes, definitely a knob, but no, didn't do great things.
0: He's a knob who did bad things. Um, That's how I'd sum him up. Ash, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This show is back tomorrow live from six PM. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.